how'd you get that um poster in the back with all with the magic phases that that looks like something that should be on a t-shirt right is that I a print or a t-shirt I, I literally made it uh i made it myself i one have, of a kind I, jake brown special <laughs> yeah one of one uh if you want to offer me one million dollars for it we can i'm open to discussions it was one of those things where i started to look for something when i was streaming that was like oh this is magic-y and there wasn't a lot out there it uh, up in my back left corner is the like blueprint of the magic patent which i feel like was one of the art options available to me as somebody who wanted to like support magic but not necessarily find like an artist print i don't know I, I, my wall this is like my black and white wall so <laughs> it was like very hard to find anything magic that i could put on there so it's like are ah, you, you know, are you on. are you an artist are you do you just typically create things out of out of nothing or this is the weird so i have had enough companies where we have bootstrapped it fully that i have had to become our graphic designer or video editor or social media person like you take on all the roles and so, yeah, in Photoshop, that was like two minutes. You know, you go find uh, Helvetica font, you kern it in a certain way, and then, yeah, you just send it out to get a print. And so the result is that I have what I've now seen at a bunch of cons. And I'm like, oh, no, could I have just paid somebody? <laughs> it's just DIY. <laughs> yes. Is, is there some particular reason for the black and white aesthetic? I think that one thing I wanted to do is make any color in the room that I had pop. And so black and white's a really great way to give any kind of color I want to throw on there uh, a big impact. And I had a few black and white prints that I really liked. I think this most difficult uh, back here is a print that I've had since got like our first flop house when I came here to join a band. And it was something that we found at like a Goodwill. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to keep that. I found these like random smoke things. And I'm like, okay, going to keep that. And it just kind of became like, I love movies. So you'll see this is the uh, Bible with the hammer hole cut out of it from Shawshank. And then <laughs> this is a one of my favorite lines from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I wanted to find ways that I could put up some of my favorite movies without having the movie poster. And so Etsy has this entire underground of like alt art or like uh, different posters that you can get for pop culture things. And it just became an obsession during the pandemic. Eternal Sunshine is such a great movie. I think I watch it once a year. Maybe it's it's gone a little less frequent, but it's... There's just something brilliant about that movie. I, I it's just, I, I don't know. They, they don't really make movies like that now. I, I just, you know. I agree. Like, I think it's Jim Jim Carrey, Tour de Force. Uh, the only thing that I, there are the lines where she talks about Alexander Pope. Like, there's a lot of Alexander Pope talk for some reason. I'm like, okay, <laughs> fine. I, like, take it or leave it. But it was... I think just such a revolutionary and like what a, a cool Kate Winslet vehicle. Like what? Like how are we getting all of this? Um, I asked my my wife to watch it on Valentine's Day. She was like, I don't think that this is the right tone. It's not a romantic. <laughs> it's not that sort of uh, lighthearted like, romantic romp. 
but I feel like it has like the ultimate romantic message, right? Is that we, you know, sometimes don't show up for our partners in the way that we, uh, you know, want or that we are all completely fallible. But at the end, we have this like undeniable love for each other. And yeah, it, it's the thing that keeps me coming back. Yes. It's just, it gets me every time, like towards oh. the end when he wants to undo the memory erasure i guess that's kind of like don't a magic thing right james i know i know we're, we're it's it's not a movie podcast but it's just james, it's just me and my I talk just, yeah. <laughs> so who is jake brown good god i i don't know like i increasingly feel like the answer to that question is like the like a like a kirkland brand forest gump like your discount uh <laughs> like i've been fortunate enough to live a pretty varied and wild life and so like a lot of that i feel like just like boils down to privilege right like i'm a tall white guy who's not like disfigured so i'm gonna do pretty well but i also you have like... four you have four working arms and two working legs uh <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, did i just say four arms two working <laughs> arms and yeah you're, well, you're functional I, well... Okay. Listen, this is the thing is I keep the other two arms out of frame at all times. Right. It's disturbing for people. They're not expecting it. No, I, I, somebody who has tried just about everything, right? I, if I, I truly believe like Seth Godin talks about this, this idea of what would you do if you knew you would fail? Not what would you do if you knew you'd succeed, but fail. And that there are a lot of people that leave a lot of like in magic terms, equity on the board because they're not willing to fail. They don't believe in the concept of failure and that a lot of times failure is where we can mine the best ideas because everybody has seen this as a failure. And so you have an opportunity to explore what could succeed there or that you just get the lessons of, of the attempt and then that will take you down a completely different path that will be very, very fruitful for you. We're too risk adverse as people. How does one become less risk averse or to think about failure as maybe not something that is crushing? Ooh. Okay. So realize that you will fail all the time and that it, that failure is how we learn. But failure is like that we don't we don't really like take and in, internalize things that we immediately do great at. <laughs> like like immediately doing great at something is fine. But then the moment that you hit adversity and you then stop, it, it's there there's no value in that, right? Like, what's the value in immediately going, okay, uh, this was going great, and then it wasn't, and so I stopped. It's that the, the if you are afraid to fail, that that is usually like one of two things. It is your parents. Your parents instilled in you that success was this weird virtue and you're probably family values. Like, sure. Yeah. Yeah. You're on like the perfectionism scale. Uh, and I, I talk to a lot of people that don't understand their perfectionists <laughs> and then, or, or it's the second thing, which is that you really like things 
And so the idea that you would create something that you didn't like would be like abhorrent to you that you would be like, Oh no, <laughs> like I, I tried to do something and instead like it's repulsive I, I, or I it failed <laughs> or I, whatever that is. What exactly. are, what are some, what are some failures that you've had in your life that you have been able to rebound from? Oh God, let's talk about failures in the last year. Uh, so <laughs> we started a, a mushroom event where people could bring either psychedelic culinary or functional mushrooms to Denver. We did a launch with one of the largest nonprofits in the nation. We booked the venue. We were all ready to go, signed marketing deals with a bunch of companies, uh, or excuse me, a few media companies here. And then we started talking to the companies and they're like, oh, we don't need that. <laughs> we're either selling out all of our product already, or uh, we couldn't attend a trade show because we don't have the infrastructure behind it. Like this is such a new industry that just doesn't exist for us yet. So yeah, Expand Lands was the name of our mushroom festival. We tried Chowdermeister, which was the world's first all-you-can-eat and drink chowder and Jägermeister festival. That was... Chowdermeister, that's a great name. Thank you. I thought the mascot was even better. It was Chowdy Duty. He was a giant clam with horns. Uh, that, I mean, he looked menacing. I'm not going to lie. So we ordered this mascot. Which might, not, which might not be what you want in the mascot, but yeah. Oh, no. I think, listen, I think Gritty taught us a lot about mascots, which is that people have been traditionally going the wrong way. Make your mascot look too inviting. It's it's always going to be creepy, right? The The... the Mascot landscape was truly forever changed when Gritty for the, I think it's Philadelphia Flyers, came into the picture and said, what if there were terrifying yet funny mascots? I think Magic could learn a ton from Gritty. <laughs> I think those, I, I think so too. There's almost like a whole other tangential topic about heroes, villains, heels in Magic, but we'll probably get Whoa. there at some point. Uh, yes. No, there's no rush, but you were just talking about this chowder meister thing not completely working out, right? Yeah. So basically, what happened is that we had my wife and I play a game when we go out. We will usually sit at the bar and we'll ask the bartender, "What's the worst food and drink combination you can think of?" Like James, what's what's yours? I'll give you a moment to think on it while I continue to tell the story. But I need your <laughs> worst. So it's an alcoholic drink and a food item, and it's not just okay. It, those are all the stipulations I'll give you. So we are playing this game and we accumulate responses for years. And I put up a Twitter poll and I'm like, hey, what's the worst food drink combination out of this? If it becomes, or if it gets, I think, a thousand retweets, I'll make this a festival. And <laughs> one of my good buddies, Josh Shearer from uh, Mystical Kitchen, gets on top of it. Uh, or Mythical Kitchen, when I say mystical uh mystical mythical <laughs> it's too much magic influence here I, i'm yeah. like mystical dispute mystical dispute mystical no uh so so he retweets it and then it takes off and one of the editors from food and wine is following along and we have to throw this festival and jägermeister agrees and we're like all right we're on it and so we're like well what would it 
what would it be like functionally if we had this Jägermeister and clam chowder festival? Well, we would make some really good clam chowder. We would make some very high-end, thoughtful cocktails with Jägermeister because essentially it's just a Maro. It's it gets a bad rap because people puked it up a lot in the '90s, but it's a it's a great spirit. And don't ever let them know I said that. And so we go all the way and we're getting national press. We probably get 3.4 million to 3.8 million page views in the first day. Uh, and then Jägermeister is like, people are saying this is gross. We don't like that. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. That was the, that was the fundamental tenet of this is that this mm -hmm. is a bad idea. Mm -hmm. We are going to change hearts and minds because of that. In the same way that like orange juice and toothpaste are a terrible combination, but inherently we want to continue brushing our teeth and drinking orange juice. They just shouldn't be done at the same time. Right. Right. You were trying right, to well, lean into the, uh, the zany, the unique, the, the earth shattering, the one of a kind. And it just like, something you, I think that this city has become, Listen, we have a ton of developers that have come here. The city has changed a ton. And so we're like, well, what would weird Denver do? And I think it's such a cop out when people are like, oh, keep Denver weird, keep Portland weird. But we do have this huge arts community that we're tied into here. And so we were trying to find something that would speak to that, that would be interesting for people. Mm. That's such a... <laughs> What's your food and drink combination? I, you can't get out of this. You have to tell me. <laughs> food and drink combination. I don't know. Like, like braised beef pork on rice and a Long Island or something. Just, just like, oh. I don't know. Just Long because Island Long Island just gets just, I, my alcohol tolerance is not great. So I'm just trying to, this is kind of a cop out okay. answer because I just basically list a drink that typically doesn't do well for me. And I just add anything to that and it doesn't end well because of one item, but. No, that's fair, though. It's a deeply personal question. And so I appreciate you answering it as such. <laughs> and, I, you know, these two examples you listed, they're not even, for me, they're not really failures. They're just kind of setbacks because you strike me as someone who is a lot of, you're an ideas man. You have an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial streak to you. So in this case, it's really just like, I mean, Jägermeister walking away is kind of like your next podcast guest figuring out that you had Andrew Tate on, so they don't want to be on the same show anymore. And it's just like, it's just the market that. feedback. And yeah, and it's just, <laughs> I mean, it's just sort of like, maybe there's a misstep in validating the the online demand versus people who would actually show up or like brands get scared. But that's not, I mean... What could what can you do, right? I mean, I don't I don't know if there's any way if you could run it back to to really avoid these things because you're trying to push it in a unique angle, and so sometimes you're going to get unintended results. So this is where I think that a lot of people fail is they don't realize the advantage they have of being a David versus being a Goliath. And for us, we were this is like all goes back to Malcolm Gladwell talks about this whole concept, but that we were super nimble, uh, like David, uh, we could, you know, pivot and, and move fast because we were a small team. We could um, it, that we obviously 
were doing something that was very different and looked impossible. So people were rooting for that. Whereas Jägermeister approached this totally thinking that they were a Goliath when they were really a David, right? They, because they, they were in league with a David. So it kind of downgraded <laughs> them to becoming a David in this circumstance, right? No, so I, I I think that they wanted to believe that they were the very important brand who has a lot at stake and people can't talk. And it's like, no, everybody already thinks that about Jägermeister because mm. they have this so ingrained in their corporate culture. You mean they're Jaeger like, they're Meister, not in on the joke kind of thing. Right, 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 right. That they try, they have to, in order to succeed, right, believe that the joke doesn't exist. And instead, mm. we gave them an opportunity to take the joke and refute it perfectly that we would have top chefs there and and top you know bartenders in the city that were going to craft drinks and, and menu items that worked with what they did this was an opportunity for them to completely change their brand and they said no we have to remain where we're at what what was the do you know the story behind it was it just like one of the higher ups at Jägermeister, like a marketing exec, just got cold feet or like... Very kind guy that we work with. There was a Denver Post story that had come out and in the local paper and everyone started texting him and going, hey, I'm reading about this Jäger and uh, Chowder Festival. What's going on here? And the guy had said something that wasn't necessarily flattering about the pairing of the two. And he was like, I can't just be getting calls like this all day. And I said, when do you get calls all day about Jägermeister anymore? Like, this is like any huge... publicity is good publicity, right? And People are at least talking about you or your brand. Yeah, this is, I mean, and for them, I think that at that point, they had had all of the mileage that they wanted. And I'm like, no, you have no idea. We had so many cool... Uh, we had a videography team and we had a ton of press that was still yet to go out. And for them, they, I think what honestly happened is that they had reached their, it, they, the runway of what they could have gotten out of it had already been reached. Mm. And I think that was they sort of already extracted what they, what they could get out of it. Right. But it's, this is the same thing that I see with, like Magic the Gathering personalities, when I talk about the open draft project, where I used to have people sit down, everyone would draft the same seat. And there were people that would be like, nah, it's too early. I don't know what's good, so I'm not going to do this. And I'm like, that was the whole theory behind it. If you can't commit to just drafting a set sight unseen, then I don't, I, why are you doing this? That's my question for them. It's like, why, why? Why do you do this to be right all the time? Because you're not going to be right all the time. <laughs> because ego, because magic players typically just don't want to look bad unless it's, a, unless it's their own self-admission and their own controlled version of looking bad. Like, oh, writing a turn report that I played bad here. We're tweeting about it. And that yep. gets magnified to 11 when people are in the public I and so that I, I feel like this this is not really a criticism of you, but I just I just feel like you have <laughs> this kind of idealistic like almost almost like there's a purity to what you're trying to do that doesn't land with people who are egotistical or 
uh, have self-interest. And I'm not even sure if that's like a compliment or a dig at you, but it's just something <laughs> that I'm observing. You know what I mean? No. Okay, so I, I appreciate everything that you just said. I think that ego death in magic would be beautiful. <laughs> like, I just want to get people started on microdoses so that we can just all start to work down. Start with the gummies or like the little, <laughs> little shot of it. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, I've got a two milligram daily gummy. No, it's that I think people live in fear of these corner cases and they don't ex they, they're not, they're not what people what the average viewer cares about, right? No one has ever, ever gone back like months after an open draft project and been like, you picked this card and it turned out that this card was better. And as long as you don't read the YouTube comments, sure. <laughs> or, but so that's the thing I do because I don't it's not they aren't my picks so <laughs> I can just go in and look and no one's ever like oh let me throw this in your face because I think that we tend to that the 20% of the community has 80% of our attention and when in reality people would rather just you like take big swings that people aren't often interested in the swing you took they're interested in the form that you had while you took it does this sound well reasoned is this something that makes sense to me as a viewer or as a listener whereas i think that people get really caught up in well was i right as opposed to how did i deliver the message so on that note it might be good for me to ask tell me about your your year of content creation. Tell me about the, do we want to call it an experiment or just something that you tried to do? Tell, it, set it up for us. What, 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 did, what was your mindset heading into this thing and what, what happened and what did you learn? So great question. Uh, <laughs> it was, I think it was an experiment, right? So I had just gotten done producing basically a year of streaming comedy. Pandemic happens. I have a ton of people that I used to do stand up with that no longer have a living. They no longer have clubs to tour to. They are like broadly tech unsavvy <laughs> and that they don't like comedians aren't necessarily known for having like a large cash reserve <laughs> that they can depend on. So I started producing all of these online comedy shows and Zoom shows get a lot of shit and deservedly so. And on my end, I went out of my way to produce the hell out of them. So I have all this OBS experience. I bought like a, you know, thousand dollar microphone and, uh, you know, I, I, for no reason, I went out and got all of this expensive gear, even though I'm entirely on the production side. So I'm like, well, what would it look like if I really wanted to do a year in Magic? I will write for Star City Games. I will stream. I will produce YouTube content. And I will try and find a community there. And by the end of it, I, I still don't know the answer to this. And I will never know the answer to it. Like, it's such an oblique thing to try and, like elucidate but i just never found a community and it was really weird because i am a person who has kind of gone from thing to thing to thing finding community building community 
and it just like for whatever reason didn't pan out and i i still like it it haunts me because <laughs> i'm like what what did i do wrong uh but i will say that all the fancy equipment all of the uh you know really sharp looking production didn't matter and I see a lot of people that are on Twitter right now having this conversation or two months ago having this conversation about what it takes to make great content. And for anybody that is listening or watching, that's like, well, oh, I need the lighting. I need the, the gear. I need the fancy editing skills. You absolutely do not. <laughs> because you're saying that you could have that, but it could still fail to connect. Oh, God, yeah. I'm, I'm living proof of it that I went through. I mean, good Lord, if I if I really calculated out the number of hours that I spent, like grinding out content, um, looking at what are the best gear recommendations, like my setup looks pretty good, right, James? It's it's pretty good. It's solid. It's better than mine. I mean, I'm still using this. Uh, I just had someone tell me the other day, like, you need to upgrade to a Shure microphone. I think it's the $1,000. Is it the M7V or one of those? Like, MV7 production? is right here. MV7? It's, okay. Yep, it's, it's right here. I keep it conveniently off screen because I'm not a hack. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. If you spend a K, you got a, a grand. You got to show it off, right? You got you to gotta show Ooh. the pop filter. You got to have the 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 mechanical arm that's just like pristinely placed in a like just oh, yeah. just on the edge of the camera one that's the thing i didn't skimp on anything like it's a 150 dollar arm at the time it was like all these little things Man, that's a high there. margin accessory right there yeah it's in it was frankly bonkers and so when i look at all of what <laughs> like there was i would have had to have done so well for it to even get close <laughs> to breaking even, right? <laughs> I think like, I made a series, and, and it, it was the increasingly poor decisions of Jake Brown when I'm building out the studio. I've got all of my monitors here. Like mm -hmm. you, you go so hard, and mm -hmm. you think that it will make a difference, but it's really, I, I don't know. It, it's the personal connections with people it's trying to figure out like what people like in this community which i think is like i don't know i think it's puns, puns? <laughs> I, don't know. I, think it's... I, I guess in magic yeah i think so or like you when you were talking with reed duke like you both talked about this like stoicism that goes into playing the game right that that you have to like tamp down all of this emotion and yet on the streaming side you need to have too much emotion and a you need to you need to let it out you need to be on tilt i guess there's definitely <laughs> been people that have made careers out of being salty the whole time so you got to figure it out and or you got to use foul language you got, i don't know what it is but i let's talk about it what what was your content strategy like i what what were you aiming for i know you were trying to do limited right yeah and that's the problem right i think so right there i think people are there's only so much interest that you have in limited and there's so much great content about it. But once limited is solved, it's solved. So if you're making content about limited, you have to constantly be coming up with here's the new X deck. And that doesn't always exist. Sometimes formats just are what formats are 
right now in you know our current limited environment you i see content creators struggling to make up new relevant texts like i i watch it happen in real time and i mean they they try something uh, something new and then they have to just go back to what it, what the solved uh strategy is or or they just they make up something that's like, well, here's a thing you can do, but you absolutely shouldn't do it. And I feel like they do their viewers ass? disservice okay. by being like, oh, well, here is technically an archetype, right? <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, uh, it's for the content, right? You got to make it exactly. fresh sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, okay, if I'm a standard creator, right, I'm going to have a bunch of new deck lists that I can try out constantly. There is one card. But is that, that not the same trap? Like standard is always solved in some way as well, right? Right. But you can, people can try out standard or a new standard deck without the same penalties because it's free to queue up an arena anytime you want to throw, as long as you have the wild cards or whatever, you have the collection, which I feel like a lot of people do. Oh, you know, just go run, you know, six, seven games with this. See how it does. Whereas mm -hmm. with limited, if I'm like, okay, it's Neon Dynasty limited. And I tell you, well, there's this Defender deck where it heavily relies on modified creatures. And technically, like this is an article I wrote for Star City Games at the very end of the format. So I'm like, what else do I talk about? And was it a deck that I think is like viable? No, not at all. But it's one of those, okay, this is my 13th article on the format. What do I write? I guess right. it's this. Yeah. You got to <laughs> clock in. You got to have that article. You got to have that stream. You got to have that content. Yeah. And, and people are so beholden to that. And so I feel like with a lot of forms of magic, it works incredibly well and you have a daily video upload or, you know, Hey, here's my twist on Grixis midrange and, or here's how we reevaluate it. Now that fables been like, you have all of these little things that you can do that I think reach a lot of people. Whereas I limited was just the wrong pony. <laughs> I mean, not that I'm trying to problem solve. I'm often very the, guilty I, of this. I'm open. And, and and this is the, and it's been and you've already gone past that phase in your life where you're doing it, but I can't help but wonder: is it just something about content creation or something about creators where you have to have this certain aptitude? I'll call it for being able to do the same repetitive shit over and over and over and over and over again, almost to the point where you are so sick and tired of it inside if you have any modicum of self-awareness, but you feel like you need to do it. It's kind of like when I watch a YouTuber, right? You know, there's someone with like a million subs, they seem successful, but if you look at their last six videos, it's basically variations of the exact thing. But I, but I understand the logic for that because it works. And, and not everyone's gonna watch the same six videos. Not everyone's gonna be like critical James, like looking at their, their channel page and, and crossing my arms and being like, why the fuck are you doing like six videos? Uh, <laughs> it's not like I'm unsubscribing. I'm just, I just didn't watch the videos. Right. So in, sure. in some case they still got, they still got what they wanted from me. So right. I think there's something, this is actually, I tweeted this today. It's like, there's something about content creators, which is like, you have to do the same thing over and over and over again, almost to the point of getting sick and tired of it. And I just feel like, is there maybe a, is there something in you that maybe just makes it so hard to do that? Because I often struggle with this question myself. 
I think you just described stand-up comedy to a T, right? Uh, the- yeah, it looks fresh when you watch like their one their one stand-up, right? But they worked on it like a gazillion times, right? Yeah, it's that it's the meme with like the guy with like all the like perfectly spinning plates on the stage and it looks amazing. And then backstage you see all of the plates that were broken along the way. And for me, standup was infuriating that you quietly say the same thing every night and you come up with a slight variation on it. And that by the end, what is presented to the audience is very, clear it is honed in refined like a million times right right but the fact that you the the problem isn't having to do it a bunch of times that you fundamentally have to present it as if it was a brand new thought every time you get on stage right you can't just show up and go that self-delusion you have to project yes you have to you cannot the moment that everybody knows that you're up there doing something that you've memorized, you lose them. Can't they can't feel like it's a rehash? Like that energy is going to be felt, right? Absolutely, one thousand percent. And it, but even the way that like you talk about it, right? The tone of your voice, the 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 register that you use, like it's the reason that a lot of people think that they would be good actors, and the moment they're on camera, they're dog shit. Like, right? Because now you have to do twenty takes. Right, now you right, have right. to do this like a hundred times. The director's gonna say, "Do it again. Do it again. Yeah. Do it again." And Are you gonna be as excited weird. the twenty fifth time? I don't know. Yeah, your voice is weird, like your face is doing something that it's never done before, and you don't know why. It's it's kind of a, a weird, impossible task that we ask people to do, and that some people really thrive in that, and I thrive in change. So, James, I, like, I appreciate that you just diagnosed me. <laughs> I am not a professional. I don't play one on the <laughs> internet, but I'm getting some vibes. I'll just put it that way. Fair. Fair. And uh, so are you, are you still active as a stand-up comedian or did you have to get away from that for those reasons? Oh, no. So I, I stopped doing stand-up actively probably in 2014. So I got a job as the cannabis critic for the Denver Post and my life kind of changed overnight. And the problem with doing stand-up comedy is that a lot of times you're out until, you know, midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., just chasing down open mic spots and working mm-hmm. on your five minutes. And mm-hmm. at some point it just became unsustainable for me because I had obligations. I had obligations to like our regular business. I now had to do all of this writing and you look at what the trajectory is for standup and it's the, the success, right? The you've made it is that you are going to be traveling 50 weeks out of the year, probably. You're doing shows all year round. Yeah, and You're constantly away from your family. You are doing something that probably, it gives you the biggest, the the single biggest rush that you will ever have in your life. Yeah. When you crush on stage, there's nothing that feels like that. Just euphoria, right? Yep. There's nothing like it. I mean, other than I think the way you described it or the way I understand it, even though I'm not a stand-up or a musician, it's kind of like being in a fam- being in a band, right? It's kind of like playing playing venues and getting that live audience reaction when you know you hit it out of the park, right? Except that you go back to your hotel alone. You don't have a Except band. then, yeah, then you're terribly lonely yeah. in your hotel room and then 
and and it's yeah <laughs> and then you yeah, have to try to do it again the next day from zero or whatever it is yeah, yeah. and and you do that you do you know a thursday night probably sometimes two shows on thursday two shows on friday definitely two shows on saturday and then what you spend your sunday traveling you kind of like ate like shit because you've been on the road you are it's not the healthiest lifestyle no no absolutely not and it, it's incredibly lonely so i think you see like a lot of comics will bring what they call a feature act, the person that does maybe 15 to 20 minutes before them, just so that they have somebody else to share in that experience. But if mm -hmm. your feature is like a younger dude who's out, then immediately like hitting on waitresses or like meeting people after the show, going out hard, like it, you're, you're still stuck in that same pit where it just, it, I had to do the calculus for myself, right? And go, even if I got everything that I wanted, would it be what I wanted? Yeah. Like fundamentally, like if I ask you a question, like, do you feel like Forrest Gump was a like success? Not the film, <laughs> like the film obviously. Forrest Gump, the character you mean? Yeah, like, like was he a successful person? I think success depends on how that person feels about their success, right? Because I think taken from that sense, I would say Forrest Gump was successful because he lives in his own world where he's doing it. He got the girl, he made peace with a whole bunch of things. He broke some records, he played table tennis, like he lived a life. So I, I feel like, you know, the bench scene that I think, I guess started and ended the movie that Sure. Like that, sh that, that is, that is the Forrest Gump arc. So I feel like that is a success because it's not how I judge him, but it's about how he, if he felt like he lived, uh, to quote, like, to, like the cliche goes, if he felt like he lived a fulfilled life. So I feel like the answer is yes. Do you feel like in the way that his character was presented, success is even something that we should be talking about? Hmm. That's, uh. That's an interesting fourth wall question, yeah. Right, because I don't think that we're supposed to look at anything about his life in terms of success or not. I think mm. that his life exists as something that everyone else's life can play off of. That mm. Forrest Gump is how we learn so much about every other character in that movie. Mm. But Forrest Gump, we kind of know who Forrest Gump is, right? Right. There's it, something Dickens-like with... Forrest Gump, where he's the protagonist, but he's just a vessel for what happens around He's him, the right? wandering like stranger, Vietnam he's the and... Jesus of the story, right? Sure. That he comes into yeah. people's lives, he changes them, and then he must leave. That, and... that is true. He is the Messiah in some ways. Totally. And so when we look at it that way, we go, wow, like, is there value in being a Forrest Gump? <laughs> like, absolutely. Maybe not, right? Because, uh, yeah, I mean... Yeah. We don't see like a ton of like character growth from him, right? Like he is who he is. <laughs> like uh, yeah, I think he's the same person from beginning to end, right? And, and so that's the moral of the story, right? Is that you can fundamentally be well, one of many morals, but you can fundamentally be yourself, be yourself one thousand percent, and that that effect will then change the lives of the people that are around you. Hmm. Hmm. So, so I'm, I'm trying oh, to figure out how this relates to your stand-up thing, or it's just like... Oh, so, like, I think that while, 
like stand up was a part of my life. It was just like something that I passed through. Mm. I, I was a writer and I wanted to see if what I was writing was any good. And there's nothing better than stand up to tell you if what you're doing is any good because it is immediate. <laughs> like you can't run from that feedback. What what is something I've never done stand up. I am a big fan of stand up like as in watching it. But who do you like to watch? This I is like to watch all the guys on Kill Tony. That's that's uh I I I was I was in quarantine and last year and I I I I, 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 I yeah, William Montgomery the what's his uh the big red machine? I big he's red hilarious. Machine. Uh I just watch whoever like whoever I find on Netflix, whoever I I just actually learned Kill Tony existed last year when I was in quarantine. I was just binging YouTube. And I think I watched 10 or 15 or 20 episodes okay. in a week. And I think it got to be a little bit too much. And now I don't actually, I, I'm kind of weird like that. Like I'll just go super hardcore into something and then I just stop it yeah. for a while. And now I might watch it like once a month. Uh, I okay. find the show and the people on that show extremely hilarious. Um, so basically what I watch is just whatever comes up in my Netflix and Kill Tony. And that's pretty much it. Like I, I grew up as a kid that watched comics, but only when they appeared on talk shows. Like, yeah, yeah, uh, they, you know, just, just when they had their, you know, Mark Maron or like, I, I was a big fan of Conan. I was a big fan of all that stuff when, when we used to still watch TV, you know, that in our generation. And uh, I love that stuff, but I never like sought out uh, you know, I think I went to the comedy store once when I was in LA. I might have like done a little bit of like just watching, but it's not like um it's sort of always been around me, but not really like a big part of my life, if that I mean, makes sense. That's the story of comedy, right? Is that it exists kind of ancillary to everything and now you yeah. just, you watch a clip and you're like, haha, that was funny, and then you move on. Exactly. Just kind of like how uh, for example, for podcasts, I think Mark Maron's WTF was really the first podcast I listened to regularly Same, because it was such a thing back then. I don't listen to it anymore. I feel like in some ways I've kind of moved on from it, but well, cause it, we watched Mark grow up kind of right before us, right? Exactly. We watched right. him process all this trauma and like now I'm like, well, I, I, I think, sure. I love the interviews with a lot of comedians that I like, it's fine, but mm -hmm it was so much a journey of watching Mark fix himself. And mm -hmm. then, you know, he becomes this, you know, multi-million dollar podcaster and those struggles become a lot. What, what struggles, right? Different. Yeah. Right. I mean, he yeah. still, I mean, he still has, everyone still has challenges. It's all, it's all, it's all relative. But I think the moment when he interviewed Obama in his garage or whatever it was, I was like, yeah. wow, okay, dude, you've, You've hit the Come big a long time. way, baby. <laughs> yeah, when you have the Secret Service outside your garage door posted on the on the rooftop in case something <laughs> happens, or so he says. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I it, it's so it's so interesting. I, I just kind of to elaborate a little bit more on your question to me is like, sure. I grew up sort of watching comedy and comedy adjacent things without actually realizing the background behind it. For example, Curb, Seinfeld. I didn't know Seinfeld was actually a stand up. I mean, yeah. other than, you know, the, the bit at the, the beginning of every episode, right? Where he, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I would watch like Rogan when he was on news radio. It's like, who is this yeah. guy? Like, I didn't know any of this. I, I just watched primetime TV and these guys happen to be on there or like Chappelle or uh, it, it's only much later on, I, I guess, with the internet 
the that I started to actually get a sense for like all the stuff that was happening behind the scenes. And, and, you know, I think it's just like the internet allows you to become a huge comedy nerd because you can, you can, it's kind of like back in the nineties. Like I had to, uh, the analogy I can make is I had to find the music videos that were playing for bands to figure out what they look like because, <laughs> and they had to be on rotation on MTV or whatever sure. equivalent it was in Canada, like much music so that I could, uh, listen to the song music? and now now it's it wasn't it was definitely not like spotify or youtube now i can find any artist any song if i could just key it up cue it up like it, it was just so there's just such you know this right it's obvious there's just so much oh, yeah. more unknown in the 90s and that's just so so amazing so. oh i mean i remember begging my mom I, this was the only thing that i ever wanted was a tape player that could record the radio so that I could hit record and make my own like DJ sets essentially where yeah. I would do, I had a little tiny microphone and I would do the intro and then I would hit record when the song came on the radio. And I just, I was, I gave her all the math. I'm like, this is going to be so much cheaper than all of these cassette singles that I want to buy. If we took the budget for all of the cassettes that I wanted to buy. And she's like, where are you getting all of this money for cassettes? Like theoretically, <laughs> sure. This makes a ton of sense, but no. <laughs> How how did you get it? Did you did you like split cassettes with friends, or did you did you did you have some side hustle to to buy them, or just saved up? Or oh yeah, I was I constantly saving up. I mean, so you know, you like you're a poor kid in Iowa, and so you just like you have hustle kind of like ingrained in you in a way where it's we have to get out of here. <laughs> like even from a young age, I knew that that I had to get out of there. I mean, we like, we had to like put pots down when it rained too hard, like that mm. level of like, like I was, we were on food stamps, free lunch. Like it was growing up was like tough. And so you, you scraped mm -hmm. uh, and you really figured out like, well, these are the things I really like, and I will find a way to make them happen because mm -hmm. no one is making them happen for me. <laughs> Were you an only child or did you have siblings? Oh, I'm the most only child you've ever met. <laughs> really? Okay. Oh, yeah. I couldn't tell. Oh, seriously, oh, I, I wasn't sure. So. That's very cool. Uh, no, there's a, yeah, a lot of my social anxiety is just responses to being an only child if that makes any sense <laughs> where it's mm. like i have to be too big or very small mm. yeah i think there's uh there's some reason to that for sure what um, about you yeah uh older younger siblings i've got one younger brother and Aww. so i definitely had to grow up being the more responsible one i was the, the how many I guess, years between you two three years it's pretty oh that's pretty perfect. standard yes yeah. that's just enough you'll never lose a fight to him <laughs> oh no he was he was pretty strong like when he used to fight like we're wrestle he he would get the best the better of me for sure um <laughs> oh that's the worst it's, it's funny bro? like yeah i mean he he had a he was on the he was on the school rugby team he was wrestling and it was very hard for me to beat him in a fight. That's for sure. Like, okay. so I had to use my, I had to be like Batman or something. I had to use my intellect or uh, just something other than brute physical strength, whatever uh, that was. 
But I love that. Like, you know something about being a brother that I will never know, right? Which uh, is... Well, I mean, yes and no. I feel like people also make great friends or almost quasi-family-like members over the years. In fact, I, I feel like that is something that people who are only children, they may have stronger friendships at from childhood that even last into adulthood for that reason. Interesting. Okay. I, I don't know. I'm not a psycho. I'm not a professional <laughs> in any of this. I just, it's just an observation, highly biased observation. So. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, but, but, uh, I, I actually wanted to ask, I was just going back to my question, like sure. what, what, how does one get started becoming a stand-up comedian or an aspiring stand-up comedian? Is there something that you would recommend to someone who's starting from zero? So know, know what you like and know it really well. Ira Glass has something about this. I'm going to like look it up right now. So I'm sorry I'm being rude, but, uh, so the Gap by Ira Glass explains this better than I could ever. That basically whenever you start out as a creative person that you do so because you like something in like, nobody's like, I'm going to become a jockey, but has never watched horse racing. You have jockeys that you look up to. You're like, that's my little dude right there. I want to be like little dude. And <laughs> so you will create this is all Ira Glass. You will create and you will make things that are like that comedian for a while. For me, I all my jokes early on were Anthony Jeselnik ripoffs, and they were really bad. And your jokes will be really bad. And then you will continue writing and continue writing. And the process of doing that is how you will find your voice. And I think that the biggest like if you want to get started you just go to an open mic they're free <laughs> somebody will let you on stage and they will let you say your thoughts and you should record it and you should listen back to it and go okay what worked what didn't and then you show up to another open mic and you run it back you fix what was bad you maybe punch up the good stuff but becoming a stand-up is not a difficult pursuit in terms of idea capital it's a time thing it's a slog because you will spend four to five years it's worse than streaming somehow james <laughs> i like i can't express that enough if even less spend... payoff that's what you're saying <laughs> i mean i think so i think the ceiling is higher for stand-up comedy but the initial investments also ridiculous compared mm-hmm and you had already mentioned the, uh, you know, staying up late and just just waiting there for your fifteen minutes or five minutes set or whatever oh, it is. If right? they gave every open mic or fifteen minutes, there wouldn't be open mics. People <laughs> would be like, "Shut it down, it's over." The drink's got to flow, man. If this guy's not do this guy or this girl's not doing it, you we can't give them that much space, that much time just to stand there and bomb, right? So. Yeah, like, so uh, Commander Sphere is a podcast that I do video editing for. And we just released a really, f I, I think, the best video that we've done yet called Dark Banishing. And it's about the host Dan Sheehan's time as a comedian and how it relates to drinking and how all of that relates to magic. And I, I, I know you're going to post a link in the show notes. So great. Um, but 
I, I think that's the other trap with it too, is that you're out late night with a bunch of like debaucherous people that, you know, you're drinking, you're smoking weed, you're doing whatever. And that there is almost a lifestyle that goes with stand-up comedy that is inherently unhealthy up there with like being a restaurant chef or an ex-convict. And it's just rough. Do you think that you may have stopped it because you were not degenerate enough? Because I feel like for people that are really <laughs> willing to dedicate that time <laughs> into it, they have to feel so compelled to do it. So maybe that's short. Maybe 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 degenerate is just shorthand for that. But they have to feel so. It's almost like they don't do it; they're gonna die. Like I don't know. Maybe maybe it never got to that stage for you. Yeah, I think I've always had some way, some outlet for my creativity. Yeah, right? yeah, that's what I'm saying. Some people don't have that yeah. outlet, and they they feel like that's the only outlet, maybe. But it's like, I feel like people are too limiting to themselves. Again, it comes back to what would you do if you knew you would fail? That so many people just go, I'm not this, so I'm this. I'm not this, so I'm that. And I've never... I've never found any value in limiting myself. But again, that comes back to like privilege. I, I can try a lot of things. I've been incredibly fortunate. Like I, you know, fail upwards a lot. Mm -hmm. There's, there's nothing been like, uh, you know, if you, if you fail this one time, it's, it's, it's over. Right. I guess there hasn't been that for you, but, but how do you define this is this is very tangential now, but how do you define Good. privilege? Because you just told me that you grew up in Iowa, where you know it was sometimes difficult to uh, for you or your family to make ends meet. So I mean that that's that's not that it's not all sunshine and roses there, right? Right, but I don't think that like socioeconomic status impacts privilege as much as like again, like I'm a tall white guy in America who is cisgender. Like I, everything is tilted towards me. And that now I see a lot of people that are very scared about how tough it's going to be that, you know, people of color, uh, people from marginalized communities are getting opportunities. And it's like, you have added so good for so long. And now what you're earning 68 cents on the dollar, like, oh, <laughs> there's a whole two cents you just lost out on. I think it's so ridiculous. The, the victim culture amongst especially like the the poor white male who is now discriminated against it's like give me a fucking break i'm sorry i don't like to swear a lot but that is... no you could say whatever you want I mean, yeah it's... no i i just personally don't like to swear oh, okay you just i see you're just trying to make a point and you wanted yeah, to use it's... the the profanity to accentuate it and it's not usually you i i get it okay i like i just i have to i have to understand that that I have it profoundly on easy mode. I play this game on an entirely different level than most people do. Mm -hmm. And that if I am not acknowledging that, then I, I am deluded. Mm -hmm. And that also some of the most welcoming people, like, so I went from being mostly like an online grinder to then I started playing paper events here in Denver. And some of the most welcoming people were not people that looked like me, but they were, you know, uh, Cora Bank and her partner, Nora, and 
uh, Caroline Pardee and like that it wasn't men that were welcoming me into this community, but it was my amazing like like women and, and trans women friends that were like, yeah, come in, like, let's go get lunch. Let's go get Starbucks. They took me to my second Starbucks ever. Like it's, uh, <laughs> it was like that. I, I really respect that there are people that want to make me feel comfortable, even though magic is a deeply uncomfortable place for mm. them sometimes. That I, I think inclusivity has to go always, right? It can it can't just be I'm inclusive to this group and not to that group. So that it does sound like uh, folks around you are living those values, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's not something that I ever shy away from talking about. <laughs> like it, it's, uh, I think we only do ourselves a disservice by pretending that it doesn't exist. You see, like there's so much conversation now around people that are like like mad at the lord of the rings character like uh, how characters are portrayed you look at i i don't know there's so much just like it, it feels like flopping in soccer where people are just like whoa i'm, I'm so mad about this whoa and it's like shut up <laughs> it's silly it, it it all comes off as so silly and performative some of the the conservative takes that I see on this, or I wouldn't even say conservative; I would say far right wing takes. I think there's also something about Magic Twitter or Magic Reddit that's just not my favorite places. Is it? <laughs> is, it is it just? Is it just? It's just not. I like to say it's not. They're not real. They're kind of like fantasy land where there there's a very there's a minority that just amplifies each other, and it's kind of a circle jerkish thing, and it just it's it's. I'm not saying it's all it's all bad or it's all good. I mean, it's it's just, man, it's just the world we live in, right? It's just, uh, it, I don't know. It just amplifies the best and the worst, right? Sure, but I also think it's important to be cognizant of the fact that the worst exists, and that's why, like for example, I had friends that didn't feel safe going to Dallas because there are people there that you know open carry guns and hate trans people, mm. and that when that for the people that are the loudest on one side it seems like there are very few repercussions but for people on my side there are very very real repercussions and that's it's, true it's, asymmetric repercussions almost yeah, yeah. i mean there are the, the incidents of violence against trans men and women are higher than they've ever been there is um the, I, I just hate that people that I really like don't feel safe playing the game that I love, mm. and uh, yeah, it's it's not ideal. Uh, I, I'm, and I just I, I feel like that when we say it's like Magic Twitter and Magic Reddit that that. It's almost too dismissive, dumb. right? It's right, like, right, right, yeah, right. Uh, you know, boys will be boys or bad people will be bad people, right? Yeah, and it's like, no, these are issues that somebody walks, that somebody deals with whenever they walk into an LGS that they don't know. Mm -hmm. Like, when my wife wanted to learn how to play Magic, she wouldn't just walk into an LGS. Oh, uh, God, though, yeah. <laughs> right. And so we look at, like, wherever there are these, like, untrusted spaces that it's... It's tough. At 
best, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's not what's going to necessarily be in there. It's that you don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I don't know. I'm like, I feel like there are a lot of people that like, to your point, I, I, my issues with magic Twitter are more people like white knighting things or mm. like clearly doing things just because they want the the likes and the retweets. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's clout as opposed to like living it. Like you know, uh, Venmo uh, a trans magic player fifty dollars right now. Do it. Yeah. Somebody, or, somebody or they show where they show the receipt. It's like okay, yeah. well, did you really have to show your receipt? Like, can you just? Just, can't you just do it yeah can't you just do it quietly <laughs> everything has every there's no tree following the forest anymore like everyone has to see it right and this is just me this is just james old man yelling at clouds kind of stuff but <laughs> that it's just something that's just my brand now it's just like i'm just gonna complain <laughs> in the process of talking to jake I just this is just be my personal like venting platform like all the questions are directed to no i'm just kidding i'm not, I'm not. there's no there's no there's no ulterior motive really I just, <laughs> I just can't help but participate in like bouncing ideas off of what you're saying and of course it's probably not what you're saying it's just i i just have opinions so it's kind of weird that way no yeah. but that's good I, like i think that uh, i i want more people to have opinions i want more people to have takes i, I want more people to be out there and yeah, I, I'm sure that I'll hear it. <laughs> what is something about the magic community that you absolutely do not like? Other than just, you know, just, just plain racism, bigotry. Uh, I guess you had mentioned one of them, which is white knighting. But are there other things about, it doesn't even have to be online. It can even be at, like at a local level at your LGS or something. Like what is something that you wish could be done differently? Who do you think who do you think the funniest person in magic is? I'm gonna put you on the spot. This is I think it's gotta be one of the better known trolls, like a canister or an LSV. Because I feel like trolling is is a is a very underrated art. Like it skirts the line between cringe and actually mean spirit mean spirited shit. And so I feel like it's gotta be like an Alexander Hain or an LSV or a canister. That's my answer. Probably, that's probably my top three. Maybe Sperling. Like I, I like what he does because like it's very underrated what he does, and I feel like people don't get that because people just lack like subtle understanding of humor. But I feel like they're doing something very advanced. That, those people have to be my top five. I think that is that is LSV is a sneaky good answer. Like I'm not gonna lie, wasn't even on my radar. Still underrated to this day. I think, yeah, <laughs> in that sense. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm not going to argue with you. Wow. All right. Great answer. I, my, my answer is that I think that magic as a community doesn't have a very good sense of humor. Um, mm. And that we tend to like either a puns. So, and it, like, oh God, the made of dishonor is like whoever started this, like, we'll just do the opposite of the thing at wizards design team <laughs> that names cards. I'm like, stop. It's hacked. No one likes this. It's over. I, I feel like there's either this like pandering punny thing that's going on where it, it just, it's gone out of control, honestly. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> it's, it's not good and objectively is bad. <laughs> uh, or, that okay so on one hand we have like puns 
uh and then on the other side we do have this like snark or like that we that jokes have to be at somebody's expense like mm-hmm. i would so i would say the funniest person in magic is rachel weeks hands down when she plays games it's effortlessly funny that rachel comes from a stand-up background but yep. no she was in denver before i know i know that yeah yep yep uh she is just so like whip smart about yes. everything and I so think magic almost doesn't deserve her uh <laughs> in, in a lot of ways it, it's it's like it's like it's like if einstein started teaching like like <laughs> 10th grade math class or something you know i i don't disagree i do not disagree I, i'm a big racial weeks fan so yeah yeah and so like her, Rachel and her boyfriend AD are two of my favorite people in the world. Uh, and, and they're like polar opposites because AD is like the driest sense of humor. <laughs> I met him in, in LA. Yeah, he was, yeah. he was, he was actually a nice guy. Yeah. But, but they're very different. Yeah. I get that. <laughs> he said actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's not imaginary, you know, he, he yeah. exists. Yes. No. He actually is a guy. So anyways. Yeah. Um, I, I just were like, that we like trying to like hit that middle mark of not puns, but not just like the just not not just like zero sum mean spirited shit, right? Right, like the stuff that is like the clickbaity title and thumbnail of Twitter, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> where, where like... That's a fun one. That's a fun. Uh, that's a fun joke. Like, imagine if Twitter was a YouTube video <laughs> thumbnail and title what would it say what would it look like anyways sorry that's what it fe- no that's what it feels like so often is that people are just like oh well, what's what's the take like right yeah i don't know I, but then again like so you brought up spurling right mm-hmm. so uh when i was at the rc in san diego spurling was on my testing team and i was like much maligned on my testing team because nate stoyer had added me to it and then peaced out so I here I am this kind of like man on an island and mm-hmm. I was like oh Sperling's the guy I'm probably most intimidated about I land in San Diego a little bit late the night before and I'm like does any is anybody eating does anybody want to get food and Sperling's like yeah I'll meet you 10 minutes bolts right there and nicest guy mm-hmm. and it, he he's probably the biggest difference between online personality and IRL personality. Yep. 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 And it, it was I was shocked. I was prepared mm-hmm. to be like so I told my wife, I'm like, so this guy's sprawling. You come. were expecting like internet tough guy, right? But he was he was not, right? <laughs> no, he's a sweetheart. He's got a second exactly. kid on the way. He's doing great. Like I don't know, he probably has you know by now, yeah. He's yeah. he's a daddy of two. Like Exactly. Yeah, I, I like Sperling a lot. I mean just just I, I respect his work, uh his body of work. Uh I think when um the funniest shit I ever saw from Sperling was when uh, I think was it was it Utah? Sperling's hits. <laughs> Where, yeah, there's there's a ton, but like the the best one, I, like I still remember it to this day. Like I think the I think the greatest of all time uh, troll from him was when uh, you know was it Yuya or like Yuda? Like one of those uh, Japanese player was caught with the Mark sleeves with Tron. Uh, you know, like. I don't remember the name, but anyways, like Sperling had this amazing thing about how like it was just I don't know how to describe it. Like he just kind of said, "Oh look, I found the deck, and it has like the marked corner." He and well, it's just so funny. In the notes, 
yeah yeah i have to find a link like i this this is like the equivalent of me trying to like describe like a, a comedian's joke and it's just, yeah, exactly. it's just completely I, flat yeah so honestly like my so uh i played in pro tour minnesota or minneapolis and my favorite thing that i took home was this which is uh, a playmat of the infamous matt nass reed duke twitter exchange signed by uh reed duke himself matt nass and huey jensen <laughs> i can't see it very well on my camera so what does it say exactly just okay. for the i guess just for the audio listeners for I'll the audio listeners way. matt nass tweets first pt with huey jensen in charge and reed duke wins it suspicious reed duke responds the tournament structure where we played a bunch of rounds of magic the gathering gave me a huge advantage over the rest of the field <laughs> And he gets like I, I will. Yes, that out. is coming back to me. Yes, that yes. he signed this playmat uh, with the tweets. Yes, but I mean the ratio on here is spectacular, insane. And, like, so Reed Duke as like the nicest guy in Magic, just totally ratioing Matt Nass. Mm -hmm. You gotta mm -hmm. love it. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's the thing is like sometimes when that dry, uh, that dry humor comes out, it's just from out of nowhere. It's just incredible because oh, you yeah, don't expect it. it. So I, there's a guy locally who has a theory of humor. Uh, he's a professor, Dr. Peter McGraw, that it's called the benign violation theory, that something has to be benign enough that you aren't going to be like, oh, my God, uh, that, yeah. that, that's too far. But it has to violate that, that whatever level of benignness. Yes, expressed exactly. It has to yeah. be like accessible enough and non-repulsive enough and uh and still it has to seep its way in to the masses and then it has to like hit you in the funny bone after it does that so it's really hard because it has to pass that first stage test which is honestly a lot of comedy you just never or jokes don't ever get past that they just get shut out because they're not benign enough you know it's it, that's why like you gotta world... think like five seconds about it and then find out oh it's actually funny that kind of thing right <laughs> Which is hard though, if you're watching a stand-up set, if you do it live and then like people don't realize the punchline until later, like that's that's also has a very high chance of failure based on my observations just as a fan. So it's it's very hard. It depends was, on what, so, when you use it. I mean, I started off my comedy career doing uh I, I <laughs> Sam Talent, uh, who I will name check as one probably the funniest technical magic the gathering player like technically he plays but he only plays mono red he my very first night of comedy he was like well you're also going to host which was absolutely savage like you don't make somebody on their first night host the show and also do a set mm -hmm. and then our guest that night was tj miller from deadpool he was the headliner on that and so I'm a huge fan of TJ at that point before he goes off the deep end. He hosts like this show where he is a weird, it's called Goreburger at the time where he is a weird game show host. And so I stumble through my intro for TJ like, oh, and on Adult Swim, he is Goreburger, but he's also a man. Like I just botched it. And mm -hmm. the whole thing about this pizza place is that people are allowed to smoke weed inside of there. So everyone's high 
And so they have the delayed reaction thing happen where they hear a joke and then the weed filters it through to their brain. And then four <laughs> seconds later, they're like, that was funny. But not delayed laughter, laughter. <laughs> ensues. It happens to every comic. Whenever, like Denver, I, I wrote a story about this for the Denver Post about how many comedians uh, either totally bomb or get too high here. And it, it happens all the time. It's not what's out. your theory? What's your theory on why people heckle comedians? Because I see it part of coming out of nowhere. And is it is it the weed or is it just like inebriation or what is it? Weed has never made anyone want to heckle. It, it's because it, it, it relaxes you. It actually doesn't. Alcohol, alcohol is what people heckle for, and because they want to be part of it. The, there's never been a heckler that is like an. There's no introverted hecklers. Nobody is like, well, I would prefer to just be here, but I feel like I need to include my thoughts. No, it's always people that are A, drunk, and B, like type A personalities that usually they think I'm helping the show. So they have to be, there's some sort of delusion or like alcohol fuel delusion there. Yeah. Or, just, or, or extreme confidence, maybe. It, it's, there are people that want to secretly do stand up. I see. They they just want to armchair the thing. One thousand percent. I mean, it's but you don't really see it anywhere else, right? It, it's very unique to stand up comedy. There's have it, have you been heckled before? Oh God, yes. What's I, the most? Uh, what's how do you ask this? Like, is it the what's your best worst uh, heckling moment, or what's the most memorable moment that you've been heckled? Ooh, um, I that, honestly like I you can't. Like I can't. They're all bad. Block right? them because, like, whatever. They're never good. <laughs> like, there's nobody that you're like, oh, that heckle was so good. I will. That turn was intellectual. Over the microphone. That <laughs> this, was this that was profound. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. I and honestly, like, I didn't get to the point where it was like high stakes enough to where I I'm just, like. Yeah, there's there's never been a memorable heckle. I wish I had a better answer for you. Mm. But there, I, I I just I just feel it's so awesome to see sometimes how you know I'll, I'll just I'll just be a degenerate. I was watching some of these highlight clips where like people just how they address hecklers. Heckler. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's like the most common kind of comedy video. They're fake. Uh, are are they faked? Or is it like rehearsed or is or it's yeah. like the one time they did it well out of a hundred and they just show that one? They're plants a lot of the times. So seriously. Oh yeah, people. Oh god, this is now like the wrestling of uh, of comedy that I never knew about. Oh, of course. So there was a guy that figured out that you could get very famous off of it. He started uh, an online comedy club around the same time that we did, uh, and he does. Anyway, he was famous or notorious for planting people that would say specific things, and then like he would make fun of their shirt, which he knew their shirt in advance. Like it. All oh, it's all prepared in advance. That's so sinister. Yeah. And it's not or so cringe, I guess. <laughs> there, yeah. I mean, there are people that do legitimate crowd work and there are people that legitimately destroy hecklers. But at the end of the day, it's, it's such a low bar because your expectation isn't on the comedian. Right. Mm hmm. And that person can't defend themselves. So it's really just like, well, how hard can you punch a toddler? And mm -hmm. the answer is like a lot of these people, especially road dogs, can really just cock back and boom. I feel like there's got to be a 
someone must have tried this. There's got to be some sort of bit in comedy where when there's a real heckler, they actually give them a mic. Because I feel like there's oh, almost yeah. this disproportionate power where the only person you can actually hear is the comedian. So they can just easily punch back and say whatever they want and tell the person to shut the fuck up. And it's just, it, it all works. Whereas the, whereas the person is heckling, how about just give them a mic once they've actually started to get funny or they, they actually have a point to make other than just being drunk. Like that'd be an interesting kind of like a duel, a duel of the minds, but maybe I'm overthinking this. People. So here's the fundamental issue with it is that then you have very much like a, a prisoners running the cell block kind of situation mm. where anybody's like, well, I'll just do that. And then yeah. I'll have the, here's my comedy routine. Yeah. And, it just brings the momentum of a show to a halt because right. you have to do the thing where they walk up. They always take a ton of time to walk up because they have to put their three long islands down. Then <laughs> <laughs> they, they stumble up there. They don't it's really know how islands, to speak man. into a mic. They're just doing this. They're, it's they're the long waiting. islands and the, the braised beef pork on rice. And it's <laughs> exactly. just always gets them every time. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, uh, yeah. So I, I think I used to watch, uh, Todd Berry because he does the um, the whole he did like entire crowd work special. So is that do you think that's real or was that planted? Oh, Todd Berry. So for those kind of specials, he's legitimately doing it. It's just very well edited. So, you know, you do an hour and a half of crowd work between two shows in a night. And so it's three hours of footage and you cut down to what the good stuff was. It, it's it's all about what ends up on the cutting room floor mm. and you're sitting at that show going, okay, yes, this person, what they do, they're like, I'm a teacher. And then he's like, Oh, what do you teach? And they're like science. And he's like, Oh, well, I don't have any good things about either of those moving on to the next Move on, Cut that one. Yeah. A lot of times what good crowd work is, is that somebody has a bit that's already couched in something about that person. So right. if somebody is drinking like a monster energy drink, they will like, or like just guide just, it there. Yeah, then they'll just they'll say something to them and then they will notice that they have a monster energy drink and go, okay, mm. that's what I'm going to talk about now. Got it. So it's and, almost and, like they have it's almost like when a when a rapper claims to freestyle off the dome, but they already have kind of the lyrics presented or they already have them sort of half memorized, right? Where there's like where they're so experienced as comedians that they kind of know where the the flow chart will go. So. James, as a former rapper, yes, <laughs> exactly that. Wait, 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 you were a former rapper? Was that the music you were doing? I thought you were just playing like guitar or something. <laughs> you strike me as like a bass or guitar player. I'm totally wrong now. That's hilarious. No, I fronted a, I fronted a band that was trying to do like a Roots, the Roots style. Uh, okay, with like, a white front man. All right. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so you're, you were Black Thought or White Thought. Okay. <laughs> Please don't ever call me Was that me your stage thought. name? Or were you White Thought? Uh, no, I was Box Johnson. Uh, before that, I was Intrinsic, but with a K at the end. And oh, yeah, That's we, such what, a 2000s, 90s name. Wasn't uh, it? Yes. Yes. Yeah, this, so this is mid-2000s, and our band was called The Blunt Instruments because we thought, blunt, that's funny. And yeah, oh, that was... I started, I started making tracks in what was called Fruity Loops at the time. When I was in high school, I was producing. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, fronted the band in the mid-2000s. And then we <laughs> we had to shut it down because our, like, enigmatic keyboard slash... And it was Chris Obviously Jeffrey, central to the whole thing, yeah. He, he was, like, a fantastic musician. One of the most talented people I've ever worked with. 
and he fell in love with our like lead female vocalist who would do our hooks and like she mm -hmm. yeah leah just killed it i need to look up where she's at um <laughs> like, I, I need to get in touch with her but she, 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 with she her. google search away or a facebook search away what, what yeah, is exactly it? all um, right he fell in love with her and when she did not respond to his advances he tanked one of like our very first live shows by moving all of our drums like a half step behind and then would move them a half step forward when we caught up it was truly like a, a masterful job of ruining Sabotage. a set <laughs> yes but yeah Is all that... those were, i loved rapping was like that's i think the first iteration of me writing as an adult where mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is a creative outlet for how I want to write. I've always done performance. I was in high school debate. I was in like high school debate with like national aims. Uh, but I was also in theater, like extemporary speech. And so it was just a real natural transition. That's incredible, man. Are you are you still doing music in some shape or form? Or did like, you just stop like cold turkey like in 2005 or whenever it was? I just started listening to music again and it makes me want to so bad. And then I'm like, what do I have to say as like a 40-year-old dude that anybody wants to hear? And I'm like, oh, maybe I'll just have like a secret SoundCloud where everybody thinks that I'm 22. Like I, I would seriously, I like... You have no idea how much restraint it takes to pull back from starting a secret SoundCloud every day. I have the good <laughs> mic. The beats are everywhere now. Do you really like back in the day we had to rap over the most garbage <laughs> like beats that you'd ever heard or just somebody else's instrumental. And now I go on SoundCloud and I can find fifty beats that are fire that people just want like brilliant. ten dollars for. There's too many to to use like you could uh, probably f have a beat every second of the waking day like it's just and uh, like oh the idea of doing magic the gathering themed music like i i've i've heard a lot of the attempts i don't want to call anybody out specifically uh <laughs> <laughs> it's a low bar i mean or yeah. or it's not a very common bar let's just put it let's, this is just me being nice um their bars are not great <laughs> literally their bars are not are not great yes uh, in addition to the, the the actual uh quality bar um like do you do karaoke like what's your go-to song at karaoke dude man you can't be asian and not do karaoke they're like it's I, just. Listen, I'm not here to. Like, I mean, I I I I run the gamut. Like, I have I have my man, Mandarin songs, but I also have okay. my Coldplay. I have my. Um, Ooh. You know, the challenging thing about doing karaoke in China is that you gotta pander to the masses. Like, you gotta do the Eminem or like the Radiohead or the Coldplay. Everyone's heard of it. Like, you can't just like break out something that's too esoteric, right? Sure. Like, you can't. You couldn't even do like Kanye West most of the time. Right, Interesting. Uh, because like they may not have heard of this, right? So because karaoke is fundamentally, I believe, it's, it's about, a communal experience. It's about right? performance and performing yes. to other people, right? Yes. So you can't just be. It's like you can't do it in a vacuum, man. So you gotta you gotta bring the hits. You gotta you gotta do the Coldplay, the U two, like what the Coldplay? Beatles. What's your go to Coldplay song. I think it's just Yellow. That's that's yeah. that's just my that's just like it, it works yeah. for my 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 register my key, mm -hmm. uh, you know I um, you know creep Radiohead that's also like a go. Wait, you could do creep? Oh, Jay. Okay, so James cut out right now, but I cannot this I cannot express how excited I would be to hear James's version of Creep by Radiohead. 
oh my god all right i'm back um yeah and uh i'm not a musician at all but i used to play rock band so i I, like creep was one of the tracks on there so i got a lot of practice can you hit that it's i'm not gonna try to hit it right now i gotta be in the zone for that to happen with like a little bit of alcohol but usually i can do it or i can do it in a way that people feel like it's not cringe and it's acceptable. I don't know why I've used the word cringe so many times. I've never, I've used it exactly zero times in all previous Humans of Magic episodes, but just somehow talking to Jake Brown just Welcome to brought the it out. Episode, baby. I don't know. You bring out the the best in me, I guess, or Aww. or the or new vocabulary. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that that's that's to answer your question. That that's that's yeah. KTV, I love it. I embrace it. Uh, good stuff. Very cool. This is what I want to ask about music, though, because you're Do an you actual you you're, my, you're an actual what my musician. karaoke song is. <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. What what is what is it? You got to tell me. Okay, so I asked that because forgot about Dre is my go-to, but I will do both Dre and M's verse. Jake Brown, it's been an absolute pleasure, absolute blast. I've kept you up long enough here, uh, uh, in your corner of the woods there in Denver, and. Uh, should I even ask you to plug your stuff? Or oh, you, wanna... kind of, you kind of said you didn't want to, or I wasn't oh, sure. No, 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 no. I have something I very much want to plug. Please do. Um, so, so I am working. I think that fundamentally we don't know how to teach magic to people. That there is this huge gap when we want to onboard new players. This year I played in two RCs and on the Pro Tour. And if I had been asked how to teach my wife how to play magic. I would have had no clue a year ago. She actually learned as my Christmas present. She she was like, I'm going to give you an early Christmas present. And I was like, ooh, what is it? And she hands me this box. And I open it. And it's Cranko. And I'm like, wait, why did you build me a CDH deck? I have no, no idea what to do with this. And she goes, oh, it's not for you. It's for me. I learned how to play magic for you. Mm-hmm. I was like, Oh my God, this is the most like deeply touching thing that a partner has ever done. And she was like, yeah, I, you know, one of uh, our good friends is dating a guy that is in the magic community. They got together quietly when I was out at tournaments or uh, at events and they learned how to play magic behind my back. And I was like, oh, thank God somebody else taught you because I have no idea. I, I, just it's so it's such a dense game it is so mechanically dense that i couldn't do it and so i spent the next six months trying to figure out how would i teach somebody magic how would i onboard a new player what would that look like and so i have a new project that's coming out where you essentially get uh two decks that you can play with your partner that walks through every step, but with those specific cards referenced, with um, without introducing too many mechanics, there aren't a bunch of extra counters or uh, you, you know tokens. All the things that I feel like are really tough with even the starter decks, and uh, and then basically it works like Magic Arena, where once you reach a level where you're comfortable with that. Then there are five more cards that you shuffle in and take out five. And then you learn the next concepts. And I think it's going to be a really fascinating way 
to bring a lot of new people into this game. So uh, if you want more updates about that, I am at Fake Jake Brown on every platform, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that good stuff. Awesome. Is it going to be a video series or a, an so, art, a PDF or? So here's the nice thing is that you, so I'm still trying, like I'm working out logistics on it, but it will be available not only in PDF and on video, but also in podcast. So if you are a visual learner, there will be a video that you watch along with. I'm like, hey, you should pause at this time. Pause. You go and find the cards that I'm talking about. We go on from there. If you just want to have it on your phone, then you can hit press play. If you want to have a video or excuse me, uh, 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 just something that you could read through and reference clearly, it's available that way. Um, it comes with a playmat that has all of your steps laid out. So you have phases of the game. It, it's all of the intuitive things that I wish was available in one package right now that you really have to like piecemeal out. Okay, I can go to Etsy and I can like find the playmat, but like evergreen keyword abilities, well, where do those exist? I don't know, there might be like a couple Google images. Well, then I have to print it out of my home printer. It kind of looks janky. Like, okay, we need a, a D20. Okay, I need like a couple D6s. Like all of this comes in one package that is ready for you. And I also am fully uh, willing money back guarantee on it. If you just for whatever reason don't like it, all good, keep it. Because mm -hmm. at this point, like my whole goal is not to make a ton of money off of this. It's to, I, we have this really big problem in Magic where it's very hard to bring in new players. And I don't want to see this game die. <laughs> I want to see young people embrace this in the same way that I embraced it when I was a kid. And that that took me to you know junior super series worlds because i you know i found this thing that i loved that i could pour all of my heart into and now you don't even have to get shoved into a locker because you like something nerdy <laughs> like, kids can actually like enjoy magic fully and so I, if we can't figure out how to grow this game in a non-digital format i'm i, I don't want to say like worried but like it, it's unsettling to me that paper magic doesn't have a very clear path forward for young people. So if we can't have junior super series anymore, I want to be able to have some way where if you wanted to teach your kid, then this is a fun video that you can sit down, put on. I send you decks that are designed to teach as opposed to like, you know, like handing somebody Cranko and being like, here's magic. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Like it was an unhinged thing for my friend Ollie to do, but it worked. <laughs> it yeah. was like there, there is a better way here, and so uh, that that's the goal. I'm working with several friends who are educators to really make sure that this is a curriculum that teaches the right way, and I'm I'm so excited about it because you know like paper magic like may not be how I make my mark on the magic world. But those who can't teach, right? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I'm excited to hear more about it. I'm excited to see this product come out. It's gonna be and cool. uh, by the way, your partner or wife seems like a really cool person. So um, tiny dynamite, that, Sam that, Sam Taylor. She is. I am. I am an incredibly lucky guy. You are so. <laughs> Excellent. Looking forward to everything that's coming out from your mind in the in the near future. Uh, thank you so much, Jake, for for your time. Thanks, James.